0: I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the B.S.G. Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today are Andy Bins and Charles O'Reilly. Both Charles and Andy are co-founders of ChangeLogic, which is a Boston-based strategy advisory firm. And Charles is a professor of management at Stanford University Business School. And together with Michael Tushman, the famous strategy professor from uh, Harvard, they just wrote a book called The Corporate Explorer, How Corporations Can Beat Startups at the Innovation Game, which will be coming out in early February from Riley. So congratulations on the book, gentlemen, and thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Martin. Very pleased to be here.
0: So let's start with the title of the book. Interesting title. Let's start with your assertion that corporations can can beat startups at the innovation game. Sounds quite hard. but Could you maybe explain that a little bit and maybe give some examples of where that has occurred? Sure thing.
1: So, Martin, I think every book needs a little provocation in the title. So, we debated should it be could beat startups, maybe on occasion beat startups, but instead just went for the straightforward. They beat. And the reason we went for the straightforward beat startups is because there is evidence of companies that do this. And so, LexisNexis, the legal information service, starting around. 2000, 2001, started work on building what has become LexisNexis Risk Solutions, now a $2.5 billion revenue unit, larger than the original unit, and in the field of big data risk analytics, and definitely displacing a number of startups, some of whom they then have acquired. Analog Devices, another company that we feature in our book, which is a semiconductor company, but it has figured out how to build condition-based monitoring for industrial companies, leveraging cloud analytics based around its sensors. And in doing so, it has the most advanced solution in, in that space. So there's a number of different examples we'd go on and talk about Deloitte and their adoption of crowdsourced talent in professional services as well. So there are a number of different companies that have demonstrated this. And as we'll go on to talk about, that doesn't make it easy, but it does make it possible.
0: So let's talk about timing, because startups and digitally native companies are taking most of the, the headlines and account for much of the growth in the economy right now. Is it in that context that you, you write this to say, well, that may be the case, but you can fight back? Or are you talking about a more perennial problem here?
2: So I I think it's a perennial problem. I mean, part of our assumption is that big organizations, at least conceptually, ought to be more innovative than small. They have more resources, they have more experience, they have more closer to customers. They ought to be more innovative. Of course, the anecdotal accounts when you look at companies like Blockbuster and Barnes and Noble and Borders, you know, we have these examples of big companies that fail. But as Andy was saying, there are lots of examples that typically don't get the press that some of these others do, where companies have transformed themselves. You you only have to look at companies like Microsoft and Fujifilm in Japan to see large companies that have really quite transformed themselves and done a better job, really, than what uh, small startups would do.
0: So in a sense, your book is about innovation. There are many books on innovation. You've written several of them. But if you boil it down, what are the the novel claims of this book that you're making about the nature of innovation in a, in a large corporate context? What's the, the essence of your message?
1: I think that the essence of our message is that you can have people who are successful entrepreneurs operating within a corporate environment and that you need them, right? That the corporate innovation does not depend on the programmatic, the lab, the process. It actually still requires leaders who are willing to take a risk, have that kind of obsession about the customer problem that they want to solve, and the passion, the commitment, the resolve to make it happen. And in a way, we're sort of both telling the story of some people who have done this, those who have been successful and those who, in some cases, have struggled. And also, we're seeking to inspire people to do more of this, because there's a bit of a fallacy in the world of innovation that this can't be done. And of course, it's hard, but you know, it, it, being, a, being a successful entrepreneur, founder, CEO of a startup isn't a cakewalk, right? It's this is hard work as well. And so it's, it's, it's about bringing some balance to this so that we can, can see corporations
0: reach more of their potential. The AI expert, Kaifu Lee, says that if you could parachute the A team for AI into a big corporation, they would win against startups all the time. He says they have the data, they have the resources they have the relationships, but often they don't have the A-team. Is that a similar hypothesis to the the one you just voiced, Andy?
1: Yeah, that I think there is a risk here, right? That corporations that don't act to create the space to enable the corporate explorers that are right there with them to be successful, they, they do risk losing more of this talent because people will join a firm based on what they can see themselves creating, what their career prospects are, who they're learning from, what they'll be associated with. So yeah, part of this is putting a highlight on what's possible and challenging corporations to do more of it. I think that's important.
0: So if we think about the balance sheet of advantages and disadvantages for a corporate versus a startup pursuing innovation, what do big corporates have going for them? And what are some of the obstacles they typically bump into? So,
2: you know, if you think about the, the assets and capabilities that a large organization has, They have brand, they have manufacturing, they have technology, they have access to customers, they have resources, financial resources. They have all the the capabilities that they need to be successful. You know, I live in Silicon Valley and 30% of my students every year go off into startups or found companies. Realistically, the the founder of a startup will spend 40, 50% of his or her time chasing money. That's not the case with a, a large organization. So the large organizations, if they get it right, and as Andy said, it's, it's not obvious. And that's partly why we wrote the book. If they get it right, they really have all these advantages. They also have disadvantages. You know, there's an an irony that as organizations become successful, they learn, and that learning gets embedded in systems and processes and metrics. And the irony is that the very things that are making them successful also make it more difficult for them to become explorers. The culture that you need in a large organization is typically one around efficiency and short-term and making your numbers and compliance. The cultures that you need in an exploratory organization are really the opposite. And so if the leaders of big organization can get it right, they can be, I think, very successful at innovation in ways that startups would struggle to, to do. So
1: the advantages side, to make this immediately sort practical, if you take the analog devices example I gave, they are in this emerging field of using sensors and AI for the purposes of different sort of predictive diagnostics. This is a field where there is no established solution. There is no established winner. There have been some famous problems with like the ones that GE ran into, but there's been no solution. If I'm analog devices and I roll up to a, a car manufacturer and they ask me who's standing behind this product, it's not you know somebody who's, who's working out of their garage or shed. It's a $90 billion market cap company with 60 years behind it. So this sort of advantage is pretty significant if they can get it right. And I think the, the failing is, is a lot to do with this, this sort of cultural challenge that, that Charles points out and the way it bleeds into the operating system, an operating system which is driven by the needs of sustaining an existing business rather than managing uncertainty. And if you can get the difference between these two ways of managing, then you're on the path towards making corporate explorers successful.
0: So let's go into some of the, uh, the tactics of executing this potential Charles, you with Michael Tushman have been a pioneer of the idea of ambidexterity, which is bridging this paradox of both running the business and reinventing the business. What's the latest on that? What's your latest thinking on how to make that work in practice? Because I think it's widely acknowledged now as as being a very desirable thing, but a very challenging thing. What's the art of cracking that? So
2: fundamentally, what Mike and I talk about with ambidexterity is the challenge of Competing in a mature business where today's profits come from, but also, as Andy was talking about, sort of exploring into the future, running these businesses. As we went around talking to people in the last three or four years, senior leaders, it became clear that although everybody is typically positive towards innovation, they weren't thinking very clearly about it. And what we realized was that there are really three separate disciplines that you need if you're going to be successful at this. You've got ideation, coming up with new ideas, incubation, deciding which of those ideas might have traction in the market, and then scaling, growing these ideas. And what we realized were senior leaders were often captured by ideation. And there are great methodologies for this design thinking, sort of open innovation, and many companies have invested heavily in that. But then, once you have these ideas, you need A discipline to decide which of those ideas really might grow into a large business. That is lean startup. That is the lean launch pad. That is business model canvas. And again, some companies focused on that. But the real difficulty comes with this notion of scaling and the ability to get the assets and capabilities, even when it may mean that you're going to cannibalize existing markets. And so that's, that's, where Andy and I talked about this, and this is part of the reason why Corporate Explorers came about. Andy, you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, I think this ideation, incubation, and scaling, and getting that this is a, a set of disciplines. It sounds like a process. You do one and then the other and then the other. The world doesn't quite work out that neatly. We separate them for the purposes of explaining rather than because you know you are actually always separating them in that sort of logical way. But just getting that there are these different modes of thinking that you need to manage, I think that's tremendously helpful to corporations who, as Charles said, kind of get stuck in ideation. It's kind of addictive to be excited about the possibilities and the ideas. And it's also low risk. Right? You don't have to commit any real resources to it. It's just ideas. And you get to play at innovation. But the real discipline is in scaling. And that's where you see the
0: best succeed. So let's dig into each of those three steps. The difficult but critical thing that needs to be got right and the challenges for each of those steps. So if we start with ideation, what's the key challenge there?
1: So the real challenge there, I think, is focusing your ideation. And that already I've just said something heretical to some within the innovation community. We argue in the book to bound innovation in specific areas. Right, If you have an ambition you want to realize in a particular market, Put some boundaries around it so that you're not ideating so wide that you can't then deal with the results so for example one company that we feature in the book is unica insurance in europe and we worked with them to help them get into new healthcare markets and they they looked at this problem of how to put boundaries around this by thinking about what's the customer journey for getting healthy and staying healthy and where are the moments people struggle and then let's ideate around those for their mental health, primary health care access, and so on, right? So put some boundaries around this so that your ideation focuses on something you can solve and really looks for a customer problem, not just a general idea.
2: Let me give you the counterexample to that. We were in Japan a few years ago, and there was a large Japanese company that all your listeners would, would recognize. And they had bought into this notion of design thinking, and they had spent four years rolling out design thinking. And they were very proud of the fact that they've developed 400 potential ideas for new products and businesses. And when I pressed them and I said, well, how many of those have you actually been able to to get into the market? Two. They were great at ideation, but they had no discipline around incubation. And this notion of hunting zones or putting boundaries around help you utilize scarce resources.
0: Okay. So let's move on to incubation. What's the critical but hard thing to get right in the incubation stage?
1: Picking off where Charles just left off in many ways is one of our clients once said to us in our first meeting, so we spend all of this money on innovation and we never get a result. And one of my colleagues turned to him and she said, have you considered your spending too much? That actually part of the issue is over committing resources too early in the process before you really know that the idea you have is going to solve the customer problem in a way that that will cause that repeat purchase that becomes the habit and drives a business. And so this test and learn method of experimentation that we credit Steve Blank with really popularizing successfully and codifying for us makes a tremendous difference here. But it presents a cultural challenge. Many corporations are used to managers who will declare with certainty, this is what we're going to do. This is the outcome we will achieve. Right? And experimentation is all about, I think this might be the case. And I'm going to look for evidence to tell me whether or not it isn't. And if I'm wrong, that's good, not bad. Right. So this discipline can help you get through incubation. But it is also one that presents challenges for corporations to
2: manage. And let me give you again, a counter example. Imagine, as some companies have done that they bought in heavily to lean startup. This is the methodology to test and learn. If you don't have a disciplined ideation process, what you're gonna do is begin with ideas that may not really be very valuable. You may test and learn, but the ideas themselves aren't necessarily great ideas. So it just makes the case that you've gotta have ideation, but equally important, you have to have incubation.
0: You said a few minutes ago that the last stage, the scaling stage was the was the most challenging. So what are the critical things to get right in the scaling stage? So we see it as being
1: three-part answer. There's a strategic element, there's an organizational one, and there's a leadership question. The strategic one is to think of scaling as a scaling path. How are you going to assemble the assets needed to reach the ambition that you have for the business? And so one of the things that we see in the sort of the unsuccessful is they never set an ambition. And all that happens if you don't say, we think this is going to be a billion dollar business, or we think this is going to be a hundred million dollar business, or whatever it might be. If you don't make that kind of statement about what you think you can achieve, what will happen is that you will scale only to the limits of the individual manager involved, or indeed their own view of what's expected of them in a corporate environment. So it's really important particularly in the corporate environment, to kind of bust the assumption about how big you can be.
0: Let me ask you a question about that, Andy. Is is that a problem of insufficiently courageous aspiration, or is that a problem of the sort of gaming of resource allocation, the fact that it's hard to take away resources from mature businesses?
1: Yes, right. So you make it smaller so that you don't need as much resources. Is that what you mean?
0: Yes. Is it a problem of we're not aiming high enough? Or is it a problem that we can't take away the resources from the existing businesses? I think this is a both and not an
1: either or. I mean, Both of those things are in play. Yes. And I'll come to the courage question in a moment. But the first question you mentioned is that it's safer to imagine you're going to have a smaller business, fewer resource allocation questions, you know, less political questions. But ultimately, you don't commit the resources equal to the scale of the opportunity or threat of disruption that's in front of you. And so you're much more likely to miss it. So the scaling path question is have an ambition and then lay out the steps of how you're going to get the customer access, the capabilities, the capacity that you need. And some of that will come from things you'll build. Some of it you'll leverage, as Charles was speaking about earlier, from your existing business and other things you're going to require, right? This isn't a, pure organic story. It doesn't have to be. There's no reason why it should be. And some of the best stories that we have are ones where they use acquisition very strategically to take them somewhere. Right. So there's a strategic question. Organizationally, we're back to amber dexterity. There comes a point when you need to separate this unit out from the day-to-day business so that it can grow at its own pace. And I learned that when I was at IBM and we grew several billion dollar businesses inside IBM in the early 2000s. And they did that by doing this separation very deliberately from the IBM management system and holding it outside. So there's an organization and then there's leadership. And the leadership question is is much more to do with this question of courage, the moment at which you are ready to commit and deal with the, the reality of having to put resources on the table to make it happen.
2: So again, let me give you an example, a counter (laughs) example. My job seems to be the, the Cassandra of this conversation. We were at a meeting with a client, a CEO and his senior manager several years ago, and they had done ideation and incubation, and they had identified a very promising business that looked like it was going to grow to $500 million. And we were in the meeting and the CEO said, but if I allocate resources to this, it's clearly going to affect the stock price because this is a lower margin, faster growth, but lower margin business. And he said, I have three years left in the job. My retirement is contingent on stock price. He said, if I do this, it will affect my stock price. He said, I'm not going to do it. And he didn't. And it's currently on our list of companies that are on on their way to failing. That is, it's a leadership failure on his part understandable.
0: Let me uh, double click on that because throughout the book, it seems to me there's a strong current of psychological, human, and cultural issues. You talk about tribalism, risk aversion, entrepreneurialism, culture, various biases. So if you're a leader trying to overcome those, those cultural biases, what are some of your key moves?
1: Yeah, that's a very fine observation, Martin. I think we are trying to give that balance in Corporate Explorer between innovation and change, that is never just a story of those innovation disciplines we described. It's also about how do you manage the, the change dynamics, the organisational, the leadership, the cultural dynamics involved. And what we observe about the leaders who are really successful is that, yes, they have that sort of purpose-led intensity. And one of Charles's colleagues, Amy Wilkinson, did a book on entrepreneurs And a lot of what Amy says about the characteristic of entrepreneurs are exactly the same as the characteristics of the corporate explorer. The differences, though, are that these tend to be people who are far more socially networked. They have high social capital in the organization. They know who they can call upon and where they can get favors in order to make progress. They also tend to have low ego. These are not people looking to draw attention to themselves, which may be one of the reasons why they sort of are hiding in plain sight to some degree, right? That they're not self-advertisers in the way that perhaps some entrepreneurs are. And why that matters is that it's okay for them to have other people make them successful. If you, Martin, help me, Andy, to become successful at building my business, and you feel great about that. And I'm okay. I don't need to you know, out-ego you on this. I can let you enjoy this knowing that I've got what I need in order to make progress. And we see this a lot in these characters. They, they tend to be very low ego. It's very clear when we did roundtables with them as we were researching the book, just how much they were in this for the purpose that they had driven, not for their own glory.
0: So it seems to me that your answer to my question then is that one of the key moves is to ensure that you have that talent and to, and to deploy that talent correctly the ones with the characteristics you just mentioned.
1: It is, though so I, I would say that one of the things that we also would like to challenge is the assumption in the sort of talent management community that you can, you can grow these people. I think you catch them and you give them the opportunity and the freedom to do this rather than imagining that this is something that you can have this systematic talent management approach to. So I'm not sure that's really true. You've just got to make sure you give them the opportunity, the license to explore early enough in their career to see
2: them succeed. And one of the things that we've noticed in a big Silicon Valley electronics firm that everybody would know is when they began this program, suddenly all these potential entrepreneurs emerged. That is, even in a staid old large company, given the opportunity, there are lots of people like Andy describes who would like to step forward. So giving them the opportunity actually uncovers that talent.
0: Let's talk a little bit about structure. I'm wondering whether whether you think that these corporate entrepreneurial activities are best carried out inside the company or outside the walls of the company, albeit with uh, with corporate ownership, or is it contingent on the type of business? So, if you separate
2: these businesses out, if they are at arm's length, truly at arm's length, then you reduce the possibility that you're going to be able to effectively leverage the assets and capabilities. If I am part of a core business and I've got some exploratory unit that is as arm's length and they come to me and they say, we would really like to use some of your engineers. So we would really like to get access to your customers. Why would I do that? Especially if they are in businesses that are likely to compete or cannibalize my own. So of course you can set them up separately, but then you lose the whole advantage of having a corporate explorer. So the challenge really is for leaders to figure out how to do both internally.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. It's, it's really there's a strategy reason to do it internally, and there's a learning reason. The strategy reason is you will build assets that might be useful to the firm. And the learning reason is even if you're unsuccessful at building the business, when you then go and acquire a startup, you at least understand it more and some of the issues and you can make better decisions about how to build your scaling path. So I think there's a good case for doing a lot of these activities inside the business though of course it depends on the nature of the innovation the access to talent that you have and all of these other parameters so it's not an either or but it on the whole some of these activities where you see entrepreneurs in residence and so on are quite fashionable they give us the the feeling that we're doing something innovative but in terms of scalable results that's not so clear and you know we probably have one new client discussion a week where it's a head of corporate strategy saying, hey, well, we've invested in this, but it doesn't seem to generate any useful outcomes to the business. It's just interesting for the ideas. It's interesting for the entrepreneurs. But for us as a business, we're not getting anything scaled out of this. So that sort of notion of doing it outside the business, I think doesn't stack up as well in a fact basis as actually doing it inside in
2: reality. Martin, you might remember when Clay Christensen first came out with his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, Walmart, at the time, leaders at Walmart read that book and they said, oh, my goodness, we have to separate out our e-commerce line of business. And they did that. And they ultimately realized that they weren't learning anything and they weren't really accessing all the capabilities of the larger firm. And then they had to bring it back in.
0: So another structural question, as far as I can gather, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're a little bit down on the idea of corporate venture capital. Am I right? And if so, what what's the problem with corporate venture capital? And of course, I'd agree with you that there are many unsuccessful examples, but what's the structural reason why these corporate venture capital efforts often fail? Andy?
1: I'm going to defer to Charles on this in a moment, because I think he's more knowledge than I have. But I would say I'm wildly enthusiastic about corporate venture capital. You can do great work. And I, I have you know, friends who lead these units in different companies and they give headlights into innovation. They make generate a commercial return. It's just they don't generate assets that you can build or learning that's really gonna be redirecting
2: the company. So it's more, there's nothing wrong with it, it's just limited. Yeah, I'm, I'm less enthusiastic about corporate venture capital. I have lots of former students who are out in those roles. Part of the problem with corporate venture capital is that they are fundamentally deal makers, and many corporate venture capital units are judged not on their ability to generate internal businesses, but on their returns. And so there's a financial play going on here. It relates to the merger and acquisition problem. One of the reasons I think that many acquisitions fail is that the team that does the acquisition is not the team that does the integration. And I think that's true with corporate venture capital. They are not thinking about scaling businesses. They are thinking about the financial sort of returns from a business. So I'm I'm less enthusiastic. I mean, clearly companies do corporate venture capital and it provides some of the benefits that Andy talks about. But in terms of actually building businesses within the company, I'm less enthusiastic.
0: So unfortunately our our time is limited. So let let me ask you a final question. So I'd like to explore the the intersection of this topic of corporate innovation with transformation. So firstly, about a third of companies at any time are engaged in some sort of rapid, pragmatic set of transformational moves to correct an unsatisfactory performance uh, agenda. That's often driven by a cost agenda. and, And I wondered whether you see that as often being at the expense of innovation. And then the second nuance to my question, I think, is that given all the cultural obstacles that you've mentioned to corporate innovation, you know, perhaps that's a, a transformation agenda in itself. So the question is, how should leaders think about transforming for the innovation potential of the, of the corporates that they lead?
1: So Martin, if, if you're a CEO, senior team, and you're dealing with how do I get into AI, you mentioned AI earlier, or how do I fully leverage digital technologies more broadly, or, or how do I deal with the sustainability challenge and convert my company to a a circular supply chain or any of these kinds of concepts, it's unlikely that you're going to get there with one giant leap, partly because relatively few firms have that kind of quality of insight. It's much more likely that you're going to get there through a series of learning moves. And that's essentially what a corporate explorer can do for you, is to teach you where the opportunities lie and how to explore them and then exploit them successfully. But there's another dimension, which is the, the cultural dimension. When, when I was at IBM, what was really noticeable is you would walk in IBM Somas from the traditional business in those days, you know, mainframe computers and PCs and so on. and you'd walk into IBM Life Sciences, a group of 20 people set up to explore computing solutions for genomics research at that point. And you just walked into a different world. There were not people in suits, but they were in shorts. They were computational biologists and physicists and all kinds of other kinds of scientists, not the people who were selling typewriters only 20 years before that you'd find in the rest of IBM. And this was, for IBM at that moment, incubating the culture of getting vertical, of understanding the customer's ecosystem and being learning how to play within it. And so even as they were exploring in the market, they were also teaching IBM something about the future culture. And we see this all the way through our research, particularly when it comes to how do you get a company to be more outside in, to be more oriented to solving customer problems rather than just churning out product. And so I think that this transformation story is always running alongside the work of corporate explorers in my experience.
2: Charles, anything to add to that? My experience, our experience I think is that when CEOs sometimes don't think about culture carefully enough. Culture is a pattern of behavior that's reinforced by people and systems. And the culture you need in an exploratory unit is different in the way Andy was describing at IBM is different from the culture you need in a larger organization. That actually gives leaders of organizations there's an opportunity for them there. Because you can have different cultures in these exploratory businesses or said differently. If you try to take the culture that is effective in the larger organization and use it in the smaller organization, you'll almost surely kill that. So the ability to manage different cultures is a part of this corporate explorer story. Martin, I have been fascinated by Amazon in the last couple three years for the following reason. If you think about Amazon. Founded in 1994, they have gone from zero revenues and one employee to $400 billion and 1.5 million employees in 26 years. And the question is, how have they done that? And the answer is they have a robust and highly disciplined process for ideation, incubation, and scaling. It is a process that has allowed them to go from selling books to producing movies to healthcare, to a variety of businesses. And if you look very carefully at how they've done that, what you see is a process where they encourage corporate explorers of a variety of types. It provides real insight into how these processes can work and be successful.
0: So unfortunately our time is up. Thank you gentlemen for a fascinating conversation and a great read with the book. I've been talking to Andy Bins and Charles O'Reilly about their new book, along with Michael Tushman, The Corporate Explorer, How Corporations Can Beat Startups at the Innovation Game, which will be out in February. And I'd strongly recommend it as a good read to a topic which I hear coming up a lot nowadays, which is rejuvenation. Corporations may be doing okay on their profits and shareholder returns, but if they look at growth potential, often they see a need for rejuvenation. And uh, I read your book as a sort of a tour of how to do corporate rejuvenation. So thanks again. Thank you, Martin.
1: Thank you, Martin.